Hello, church. Felipe Assis here. I have the privilege of serving you as senior pastor. And today I'm here with Sam Miranda, our Miami Springs pastor, and Carter Brown. I promise you this is still Carter Brown, even though he's missing his hair. Carter is our lead pastor here at Crossbridge. And we want to let you know that we truly, truly miss you, that even though we're gathered virtually, it does not replace our physical gatherings that we have whenever we're not in quarantine. And I know, and you know, that uh, even though uh, the doors of our church are closed, the church is not a building, the church is a people. And so even though the presence is virtual, we know it's very much real to us here. Yeah, we, we, we've decided to do this again, so pray, pray for us. We've got such an overwhelming positive feedback with this style of co-teaching last week. It just feels like we're, we're at home with you, and that's what we want to bring again this Sunday. Today, uh, there's, there's a couple new things. Uh, we're in a different location. We're at a Pinecrest location. We are uh, literally six feet apart, not figuratively six feet apart like last week. And um, it's become apparent that Pastor Carter lost a quarantine quarrel with his barber. And uh, oh, Pastor, is that a one or a two? Maybe you could drop that in the comment feed, folks. Is that a <laughs> one or two? a one or a two? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, this, uh, this day is Palm Sunday. It is an exciting and special day in the life of the church. It is a day that we commemorate every year as a church, a day that begins Holy Week. This is the first Sunday of Holy Week before Easter, which, can you believe it, is next Sunday. And this has been celebrated for thousands of years. Really, since the fourth century, the church has celebrated Palm Sunday, the day where we remember and celebrate the kingship of Jesus, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it is a day that we stand with the church all over the world and celebrate who Jesus is, our King. And so we're going to jump into our text this morning. We're going to look into the Gospel of John and read from John chapter 12. So if you have a Bible at home, you can turn there with us as we read John chapter 12, starting in verse 12 and going into verse 19. So if you could read along with us. Our text says, The next day... The large crowd that had come to feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him, the crowd that had been with him when he, was called, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. So today, as we uh, take this text into consideration, as we meditate on this text, we're going to ask two questions. The first question is, what is the meaning of the triumphal entry of Jesus? And then, what hope does it bring us today? So, boys, uh, what is the meaning of the triumphal entry of Jesus? Yeah, one of the things it means is the, uh, what we see here is the intentionality of Jesus. Um, it's, it's become apparent that 
the disciples, verse 16, uh, Carter just read it. They don't know what's going on. Everybody's on edge. Pharisees are on edge. They don't want to, there's a plot to kill Jesus, but they don't want to do it for fear of the reprisal of the people. Um, Lazarus was just raised from the dead, right? He's on edge because he was brought out of the tomb, and now there's a plot to kill him as well. And so everybody's nervous. Everybody's anxious. And, and here's how we know this, because later on they would get it. They would piece together the bits and pieces of the Bible, and they would understand who this man really is. Peter would later write in his letter, the Apostle Peter, First uh, Peter 5, 7, he writes this. He says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, this word cast, right, it refers to the act of throwing something. We're, we're called to throw or cast all of our burdens, all of our anxieties onto Jesus, right? It's the, it's the, the, the crucial thing that we got to do if we're going to humble ourselves under God's hand, if we're going to clothe ourselves uh, with humility towards other people. And by the way, this is not a separate thing you do uh, uh, after you humble yourself. It's the thing you got to do in order to humble yourself because there's something about humility that creates anxiety, Right? The risk of losing face, the risk of not being rewarded, the risk of not being praised, the risk of not being uh, you know, appreciated. And, and I bring Peter's uh, uh, letter here because this word cast in the Greek occurs only one other place in the Bible. And it's right here on Palm Sunday. And I believe this is the scene that Peter's thinking about, right, when he's writing this, when he's using this word in his letter. Because the disciples go off uh, uh, to get a colt or a donkey for Jesus. Uh, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 19, it says that they brought the donkey to Jesus, and watch this, casting their garments, throwing their garments on the donkey, they set Jesus on it. And so this is a very simple illustration. If you don't want to carry your garment, you throw it on the animal, and therefore you don't have to carry it anymore, right? The animal does the work for you and lifts your burden. And if you're wondering, so what? What does that, what does that mean? Listen, one of the greatest things about God is that he commands us to let him work for us before commanding us to work for him or doing anything for him. Listen to how Isaiah puts it. One of the OG prophets, Isaiah 64, 4 says this, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God beside thee who works for those, thank you, Lord, who works for those who do what? Who wait for him. God wants to be a burden bearer. He wants to be a burden bearer because it puts him in a class all by himself among all the, all the, uh, the so-called gods of the universe. He wants to carry your burden. And so let us cast our garments of anxiety on him. Let us clothe ourselves with humility. Why? Why would we do that? Because he wants to carry it. That's his agenda. That's what he's doing. Here's our problem. When we don't believe that God cares about the thing that's got you worried, that got you anxious, that got you scared, right? We have a tendency to hold on to our anxiety because we think we can carry it. That's our agenda. God's agenda, hey, I want to carry this for you. Our agenda, nah, I think I got this. I want to carry it for myself. But I thank God that Jesus doesn't do anything according to our own agenda. Jesus has his own agenda, and he's fulfilling Scripture in a very very intentional way. He's the Messiah of old, right? He's the, in, in, the, in Isaiah, it says here in Isaiah 53, the one who will be despised, the one who will be rejected, the one who will be well acquainted with grief. He is precise with every word. He is intentional in every action. He's the one promised to Eve 
to Abraham, to David, the, the Psalter would then write in Psalms 118.22, he is the stone that the builders would reject. He's the fulfillment of the oracle of all the OT prophets. We don't got time to go into all of them, but one of them is quoted right here, Zechariah 9.9 to be precise. And so these disciples, they would later on piece all of these bits and pieces of the Bible, and they would say, oh, that's who Jesus was. It's kind of like that moment when you lose your keys or your cell phone, and then you find it like 17 hours later. Oh, that's where I put them. That's the moment that they have here. They discovered who Jesus is. This is the guy. This is the guy who Isaiah 10, 11, 10 talks about when he writes, In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, and all of the nations will rally to him. Jesus has got an agenda, and he's intentional. He's showing us that he is the fulfillment. He's the, he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures, right? He is the, the, the scriptures testify about him. As he humbles himself under the hand of God, as he's about to suffer the greatest humiliation by bearing the heaviest burden imaginable. So here's the question. Whose agenda are you going to follow? Whose agenda are you going to follow? Are you going to follow Jesus' agenda and cast all of your worries and all of your anxieties and all of your cares on the one who's marching to the gates? Or are you going to follow your own agenda, hold on to all these anxieties and all these worries and all these concerns because you think you know better? Hmm. Here's a question, or, or rather, listen, church, the humblest thing that you and I can ever do as Christians is to not only believe that God has the power to care, right, but he also has the wisdom to put that care to work in the most intentional way. Man, that's so good, Sam. Man, I'm, 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 I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Sorry. The, the intentionality <laughs> yeah. of Jesus to cast everything upon him. And, you know, one of the things that I'm just meditating on this text I see is that we can do that because of the quality of Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the crowd here is so interesting in the passage. The crowd is gathered around as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem on Passover week, which will be the last week of his life. And they are shouting and they're celebrating and they're proclaiming. They're saying, Hosanna, which means save us. And they're laying down these palm branches. They're casting, as you said, Sam, their garments. And then they're shouting as well that he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. And this is a shocking scene. It's shocking because the king of the Jews is Herod. He is a self-proclaimed king of the Jews who has been set up by the Romans to rule the Jewish people. And he is narcissistic, and he is power-hungry, and he does not stand for anybody else claiming to be king. And yet the crowd boldly shouts that Jesus is the king of the Jews, that he is the one who has come to save. And then it's also shocking and bold because, as you mentioned, Sam, in the previous chapter, John chapter 11, where Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead, the Pharisees are angry. They see the writing on the walls. Jesus is becoming too popular. All these people are following him, and they're going to make him king. They're going to set him up as this Hosanna Savior figure. And so they actually plot to kill Jesus in the previous chapter, and it says they send out orders among the villages and towns to see where he is so they can begin to make good on this plot. And the crowd knows this. They know that there's a plot to kill Jesus. There's orders sent out. And that Herod will be extremely jealous over this proclamation. There's consequences. But yet they, 
continue to celebrate and to shout and to lay down garments and palm branches to bring Jesus into the city because they see his qualities. They see that he is magnificent, that he is majestic, that he is in fact the one who has come to save the king of the people, the king of the Jews. And it's so striking, the details here, because it's not only that he's ushered in like a king, but the way in which he's ushered in, you see that not only is Jesus magnificent and majestic, but he's modest. He sits on a young donkey. A donkey would have been used by average everyday people. He doesn't come on a stallion. He doesn't come with a chariot. He doesn't come with gold and silver. He comes with palm branches on a young donkey, modestly, lowly, humble, because his qualities are utterly unique. He is truly the perfect balance of majestic and modest. He is the king that we all long for. He is the king that we desire. He is the king that we crave. You know, in the perplexing book of Revelation, the very last book of the New Testament, the Apostle John writes this book. It's a a book of vision, a prophetic vision. And chapter 5, he gives this passage of hope, and it fits really well here to bring out the quality of Jesus. Here's what he says in Revelation chapter 5. Starting in just verse uh, 5, he says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. See, he's saying here that the lion has come. There is one who is strong and who is courageous and who is magnificent and majestic like a lion. The lion of Judah, the root of David. This is speaking of Jesus Christ our mysterious Messiah. And He alone is the one that can open the scroll. He, is the, he alone is the one that is worthy to hold the scroll of life and really the keys of the universe. But this lion is also a lamb. Next in this same chapter, he says in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the passage goes on to say that the lamb as well holds the scroll. You see, the lion is also a lamb. The lamb is a lion. It's one person, one person who is worthy, who is strong and sacrificial, who is majestic and modest, who is in fact the true, perfect, balanced king, the king that we long for. That is Christ himself. His quality is utterly unique, and we crave this type of king. This is what we all desire, especially in times of crisis. We are looking for a king who is lamb-like, who is lion-like, who is strong and majestic and magnificent, but also modest and also humble and one of the people. And we struggle in times of crisis because we have a hard time finding that, right? We see people that are fierce, but they are not humble or people that are humble, but they have no grit. And we see great leaders all throughout history. You know, we, we read stories and books about great leaders. One of the ones that I've been thinking of recently is Henry V. Uh, there was a Netflix uh, movie, I think it was, that came out last year called lo- The King. I-, I loved it. It was one of my favorites on it's, Netflix. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, Henry V, this man who leads the English people to conquer the French, who outnumber him at the Battle of Agincourt, And Shakespeare writes a famous play after this man, and he 
calls it Henry V. And there's all these movies and shows that have been made at, after his life. And Shakespeare and even the movies portray a king who is competent and strong and fierce, but also one of the people and who is just. It's the king that we desire. But what's interesting is that Shakespeare's version of Henry V and all the movies that we see is not the real Henry V. In order to get that type of king, we have to adjust the facts. We have to stretch the facts a little bit. But there is one who is the king, who no facts have to be altered, nothing has to be stretched. He is, in fact, majestic and modest. He is, in fact, a lion and a lamb, and his name is Jesus. And in this time of crisis, we are trusting in ill-equipped leaders. We begin to put our hopes in guidelines and government, shouting Hosanna, thinking that they will save us, but they will not. And we begin to worship things and ascribe ultimate value to things that are failing, and it's causing, as you mentioned, Sam, this anxiety, our, our careers, our, our finances, our comfort, our health even. But there is one in our midst who is the lion and lamb-like king, majestic and modest, and he is with us. His quality is unique, and we can look to him, and that is Jesus. Yeah. You know, this, uh, this episode here in the Bible is filled with meaning. You know, Jesus is very intentional about every single detail. He is communicating something about his character, the quality of his character, as you pointed out, Carter. But he's also uh, trying to communicate deep truths about the nature of the kingdom that he is his bringing. And uh, one of the things that uh, was confusing to the disciples as they were there with Jesus, as he rode through the gates of Jerusalem that very day being hailed by the crowd, was the fact that uh, they didn't understand what Jesus really was trying to do in terms of the kingdom that he was trying to bring, mm -hmm. right? Verse 16 is very clear that they only understood this much later. This is probably after the resurrection, after spending time with the resurrected Christ, that they understood what really happened that very day. Uh, they acknowledged that their expectations at the time uh, were not the right expectations. Uh, the disciples, alongside with the crowd, they uh, wanted a Messiah that would liberate them militarily and politically uh, from the Romans, mm -hmm. from the oppression uh, of the Romans. And it was weird that he was riding a donkey and not horses. Uh, later on, as uh, Jesus uh, enters through the gates of, of Jerusalem and begins to spend time in the temple and with the disciples and teaching and interacting with the Pharisees, they're asking themselves, wait a minute, where are the swords? Where's the military training? What are you doing? They were completely, completely confused. They had no idea what was happening and going on. And, 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 and Jesus wants to show that the nature of his kingdom is not power. The nature of his kingdom is love. He did not come to take power. He, he, he came to give up power. You know, as Jesus continues on that road, uh, he does not ascend into a, a throne, but he ascends, as we know later on, the hill of Golgotha to a cross. Instead of going to a throne, Jesus goes to a cross. And on the cross, uh, Jesus comes under powers, under the powers of death and sin and hell, the powers that truly dominate us, truly control us in order to free us from uh, their oppression. You know, the 
liberation that Jesus has come to bring is, is very deep. Uh, Jesus is going, if you will, under the hood. Uh, rem, you know, think about this. If, if you go into a junkyard and you, and you pick up a car to restore that car, uh, and, you know, the, the engine is, is broken, it's old, uh, you know, things are rusted, you know, the body of the car is, uh, is, is, is full of dents and, and it's, it's smashed. Now, what good would it be for you to restore the body of the car without taking care of the engine? What good is it to have like a beautiful car on the outside when the engine is broken? And what Jesus is trying to do here and say and communicate to the disciples by that entry is to say, I'm not just coming to work on the body. I'm, I'm working under the hood. <laughs> I, I'm working under the hood. I'm working on the engine of, of this whole thing. He is saying to them, you know, what good is it for me to lift you from the oppression of the political powers if I still keep you under the oppression of the spiritual powers? Jesus is saying to them, what good is for me to free you from the tyranny of the Romans if I can't free you from the tyranny of death? Jesus is doing the work that needs to be done, the work underneath the surface. That is what we ultimately need. And so his liberation is not only deep, but his liberation is also wide. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. What's with the palm branches? You know, he's coming in through the gates of Jerusalem. The crowd is greeting him. They're hailing him as king. They're singing Hosanna, and they're waving these palm branches. What's with the branches? And, you know, I went through commentary to commentary, and, you know, there, there's, no much, there's, there's not a whole lot of depth to that. Uh, you know, for the crowd, it was um, something just low budget, you know, because they didn't have flags. They didn't have banners. They didn't have time to preparate them, you know, to make them. They just grabbed something that uh, it was handy for them. It was something that they could probably find on the streets in front of their houses. And, and they're waving uh, those palm branches as they're hailing Jesus as king. But for Jesus, there's a lot of meaning to that because in the prophetic literature, if you read through the prophets, the prophetic literature, it speaks of Jesus' liberation not just being a liberation for us humans, but it's a liberation for all of creation. You know, Paul in Romans 8 speaks of the fact that, you know, cr the creation groans. You know, it's going through pains. It's groaning, longing for its restoration. And this is what it's all about. Like, if you, if, if you, for instance, go to Isaiah 55, right? Isaiah 55, 12. Uh, this is what we read in Isaiah 55, 12. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Isaiah says, you know, when the Messiah comes, not only will the people be glad, but all of creation, including the trees, they'll clap their hands. And then in Psalm 96, verses 11 through 13, the psalmist says, you know, when the Messiah comes, we read this, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to rule the earth. That's beautiful. Creation is longing for that day, and that's why Jesus has come. His liberation is not only deep, but his liberation is also wide. See, the reason why we have pandemics, the, we, the reason why we have poverty, the reason why we have oppression in our world is because of sin, because Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. But Jesus, the son of Eve, as it was promised right there in Genesis 3, he would come and he would restore us back 
to the original state of creation. He would lift the curse, the curse, and he would lift the curse by putting himself under the curse. You know, it, it reminds me of um, that part in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, where the the witch finally captures Aslam, the the lion, who is a picture of Jesus, and uh, she takes him to the sacrificial table. And she believes that now she has won, that the battle is done, that hers is the victory. But as Aslam is sacrificed on that table, the table begins to crack. And the kids, you know, the children are asking the question, what's going on? What's happening? You know, obviously, Aslan uh, does not die but he is obviously raised. I mean, he, he dies, but he's raised uh, from the dead. And he comes back, and he gives the explanation to the children. He says this to the children. You know, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack, and death itself would start working backwards. That is the nature of Jesus' kingdom, a restorative kingdom. And, uh, you know, that gives us insight already into the hope that that event, you know, brings to us today. Yeah, that's that second question, what does the hope bring? And there's so much here. Um, the thing that I just kept coming back to is that he wins, that Jesus wins. That's the hope that we have, right? Five days from this event, from Palm Sunday, Jesus will be betrayed, he will be arrested, he will be tortured, he will be crucified, and it will feel to the disciples, to the followers of Jesus that all hope is lost, that their Messiah, their King that they just ushered in, this triumphal entry has now been killed by the Romans and by the Pharisees, that their plot won. And they actually say in Luke uh, chapter 24, verse 21, they say, how could this have been the one we had hoped would redeem Israel? How could this have been him? The one, as you said, Felipe, that allows himself to be killed, to kill death itself. But three days later, as we will celebrate next Sunday, Jesus comes back. He is, in fact, the victorious king who comes back from the dead, who has conquered sin and death itself. And you know, when I think about that, that Jesus has conquered sin and death through his death on the cross and then also his resurrection, sin reminds me of the reality that he has won over my sin, that all of my sin and all of your sin that we have committed past, present, and future because of Christ's sacrifice has been paid for. It has been atoned. It has been forgiven. And death itself also has been upended, that though we die, the passing away of our life is not the end. It is actually the beginning of a new hope and a new joy where we will exist with God perfectly together and with one another. What a great hope. But there's so much more to that, that Jesus has conquered sin and death because sin causes death, but not only physical death, but death of other forms. You see, we experience the death of wisdom. We experience the death of love. We experience right now the death of community, it feels like. We experience the death of hope. We experience all types of death in our life. But Jesus has won. 
He has won over sin and death. Any death that you may be feeling, Jesus has won. He's conquered it. He is, in fact, the victorious king, the one that we long for. There's a, a hymn that has been remade. It's called Blessed, Blessed Assurance. And uh, there's a bridge they added to it that uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to sing, but we got Sam up here. Sam, you're, you're a singer. Um, you're going to probably try to go falsetto on here, but the bridge... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the bridge says, um, death could not hold you. Come on. You are victorious. This is bad, guys. I don't even know what you're singing. But then it says, <laughs> praise to the risen king. I'm not going to try to sing. That was embarrassing. But the, the, the main part says, the chorus, this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long because he has, in fact, won over sin and death. It will not have the last say in your life or in any of our lives because of what Christ has done. Yeah, and hope does not only come from the knowledge that we know that Jesus has won, but uh, as he walks through those gates, he is making the statement that he rules. He uh, walked through those gates, he rode through those gates in humility, but because he rode through those gates in humility, the Father exalted him. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, putting him above every other king, every other name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. And so we are assured by this that Jesus is on his throne. He's on his throne. He's sitting on his throne. And what that means is, number one, that that is not circumstantial. I know that when we look around uh, our world right now, we may ask the question, is God really in control? As uh, we get sick or as we lose our jobs, we may ask the question, is God really in control? But this truth is not circumstantial. But you know what it does? It, 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 it begs us to ask the question, who is in control of our lives? Who is sitting in the throne of our hearts? You know, Jesus has come to rule the universe, but he has come to rule our lives as well. He has come to exercise governance through the life of the church, which involves us. I said in the beginning that the church is not a building. The church is a people. And he has come to rule in our lives. And if we're really honest, we know that uh, um, we are ruled by many other things besides Jesus. Uh, some of us are ruled by people. Some of us are ruled by our careers. Some of us are ruled by our image. Uh, some of us are ruled even by our children. Some of us are ruled by our money. And a crisis such as this, it is a good thing for us because in a moment like this, our idolatries are revealed. Uh, because now uh, we know that they cannot save us because they're fleeting. We can lose our jobs. See, our jobs are not permanent and they're not eternal. We can lose our health. We can lose our image, our image, our health. Those things are not eternal. Uh, we can lose friends. Anything that we put our hopes, trust in, in this world, we are bound to be disappointed. Jesus is the only true eternal king. He is the only one worthy of our worship, of our devotion, of our surrender. Uh, he is the only one that uh, we're called to truly bend our knees 
to the person of Jesus. Uh, I, um, I remember reading a while ago this uh, little story. It's a fictional story entitled uh, Palm Monday. It's the story of the little donkey that rode Jesus through the gates of Jerusalem as Jesus was being hailed by the crowd. Uh, he goes home, and uh, on Monday, not on Sunday, but the following day on Monday, he goes back to Jerusalem, and he goes through the same uh, road that he rode Jesus through, and he goes under the, and through the gates, and he goes to the marketplace, and he is puzzled because the people are not cheering him. The people are not excited to see him. He's treated just like a normal animal. And so he goes back home, and he says to his mother, his mother donkey, uh, Mom, why did people not care about me when I was in the marketplace or riding through the gates as they were yesterday? And she says, the difference is the one who was riding you. And to me, that's such an important story because it brings home that this question that you should all be asking, who is in control of the reins of our lives? Who's holding the reins of your life right now? Is it Jesus? Is it your work? Is it your children? Is it your image? He has come to rule. He has come to rule the universe, and He has come to rule our lives as well. Yeah, He rules, He wins. Here's a third thing that gives us hope. Um, the Lion of Judah is marching through the gates. <laughs> and, and, and my prayer uh, for everyone this season is that, you know, we draw uh, from His strength. The Lion of Judah is marching through the gates. Let us draw from His strength. Here's why. Because there's another lion out there who is seeking to devour our faith in God by using pain and suffering. Here's the hardest thing about suffering. It's not that it can sneak up on you like this whole pandemic has, like out of nowhere. It's that pain and suffering can overwhelm our faith with fear, with anxiety. It, we, we didn't get into this text today, but listen to what Jesus says here, and I'll piece it together for you. John 12, verses 23 uh, and 31, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. As Pastor Philippe says, sin is our problem, but it ain't the only problem. We've got an adversary out there who is seeking to devour us. And if God is sovereign over, our, over this situation and over our adversary, which he is, then his designs, even in the midst of our pain and suffering, is not destructive. It is, for our, it is building us up. It's, it's constructive for our purification, for our holiness. The devil aims to devour, but God aims to empower us, to, 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 to shape us, right, to reproduce his character in us. If Jesus is coming in and riding in into our heart today, make him king of your soul. He will clothe you. Listen, I promise he will clothe you with the humility that you're going to need, and he'll make you a lion heart because that's who he is. He's absolutely a lion heart. How does he do this? How does he do this? The gospel. That's how, he do, that's how he does this. The gospel humbles us because it shows us his grace as he did the work and he continues to do the work in, in our lives. And it empowers us because it reminds us that we have a new identity in the line of the tribe of Judah. In a crisis like we're facing today, there's going to be a lot of people that are facing anxiety. They don't, know, they don't have the courage to make it you know, to next week, or I don't know. There's going to be people who lack the humility. They're going to exploit other people. They're going to put other people uh, uh, at risk. However, Bible-believing, grace-based, uh, Holy Spirit-filled Christians 
have the power to face any situation because we have both the courage and we have the humility that it takes to lead and to serve others through such a time as this. Will you surrender to Jesus? Will you follow his agenda and allow him to come marching in through the gates of your heart? Amen. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to lead us through a prayer of surrender. And so wherever you are, I want you to extend your hands. I want you to close your eyes. And I, I, I want you to pray with me this prayer. And, and it goes like this. Uh, God, I acknowledge Jesus as king. Pray that. I acknowledge that he rules over all of the earth. Pray that. And today, I open the gates of my heart. You pray that. I surrender my life to your king. Will you pray that? Father, I confess all the false lords and tyrants that have ruled my life. Pray that. And Father, I want to come under the lordship of Jesus. Pray that. Father, transform my fear and anxiety. Will you pray that? Transform it into joy and courage. Through Jesus' name, amen.